On this spectacular episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1981 in issues 49 and 50. Matt Sherman fills us in on the latest James Bond epic, for your eyes only. Brian Ramsdale discusses how George Lucas developed the Star Wars saga. Burt Bruce considers John Carpenter's latest project, Escape from New York. Michael and Andrea Havens fill us in on what Jeremy Bullock was up to while filming The Empire Strikes Back. From the other side of the pond, Anthony Rooney tells us about ITC. Plus, the heavy metal animated movie. Video games. And more on this episode of... Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. The Music City Multicon, October 29th through 31st in Lebanon, Tennessee. Tons of video games there, as well as board games and other multimedia surprises. Join us at ShadowCon, January 6th through 8th. First convention of the year, Memphis, Tennessee. Lots of real-life fighting, tabletop gaming. And panels on lots of different subjects. It's a really fun con. Starlog Magazine, issue number 49. Cover date, August 1981. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Jimmy Bird from Reedley, California says, We all know that The Empire Strikes Back did remarkably well at the box office. What I would like to know is whether it made the top ten money grocers of all time. For that matter, what are the top ten? So at this time, in 1981, the top ten movie money grocers of all time were Star Wars, Jaws, The Empire Strikes Back, Grease, the Exorcist, The Godfather, Superman, The Sound of Music, Sting, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, I remember reading that, and I, I always thought it was interesting. So so it looks like that list doesn't really account for, for inflation. It's, it's got the most recent movies. Of course. It doesn't have Gone with the Wind, doesn't have Wizard of Oz, things that were Citizen Kane, things that we know that were monumental successes with regard to ticket sales. This was going strictly by the monetary numbers. 
So the top grossing films, I mean, Star Wars was number one. And that, that figures, you know? I mean, it, it changed the way a lot of movies were made. Log Entries, latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. It's Wedding Bells for Mork. In what may be the biggest wedding since Jeannie married Tony Nelson, the fifth season of Mork and Mindy will start off with the two tying the marital knot, thus ending their platonic relationship forever. They will honeymoon off-planet, on Ork, of course. Do you remember this episode? Yeah, I do. And, and I, I mean, you know, this was another ratings thing. It was Jump the Shark because the show was going downhill in the ratings and so they had to do this. But, but it was fun though. I mean, because I always wanted them to get married. So, I mean, it, it was pretty neat to see it. And, and I loved seeing Ork for the first time too. Give us a, a flashback. What was it like as a Mork and Mindy fan, a Mork fan back from happy days to see him reached this milestone in his life. I, I think I remembered more about Orc than their actual wedding. But I know it was just, um, it, it was crazy showing the people and, and Mork was, you know, you know, they made it a whole, they made a whole story about Mork kind of being insecure and going in hiding and everything because he was just scared and that, that's basically <laughs> what I remember of it. Books on bondage. After many years on the screen, 007 is back in print with a vengeance. Now, this is the first James Bond movie that I remember seeing posters for, advertisements for, that being for your eyes only. So it was obvious that there was going to be a multimedia blitz surrounding this new movie, whether it was tie-ins or not. James Bond, the Roger Moore James Bond, which we often say is our James Bond, was hitting the media full force. I remember distinctly, we were in New York City at the time in 1981 when movie posters were all over the city for Your Eyes Only. And I was of that age where I saw those, you know, if you think about the movie poster, it's the big butt cheeks and legs with James Bond underneath them. (laughs) Oh man, I was looking at that saying, ooh, I want to see that movie. This news article talks about a new James Bond novel written by John Gardner was going to be released, License Renewed. I ended up being a uh, John Gardner fan. I loved his books, Icebreaker, and he, he had he had a series of books post Ian Fleming that were fantastic. And the James Bond fan club was releasing the illustrated James Bond, 007. And at specialty stores, Bondage, the official publication of the James Bond fan club, was releasing its newsletters. And also, the Marvel Comics adaption of For Your Eyes Only magazine would be coming out. And I remember getting the comic books that came out after the magazine, because that was a common thing for Marvel to do. Release the magazine format in comic book shops, and then at newsstands you'd get the, the standard comic book size version. All right, cats and kittens, this is Bert Bruce, also known as Bruce Bertner. We're here at Starpod Blog. Thanks to our host for having me again. Uh, we're going to speak of issue 49, August 1981. James Bond, a.k.a. Roger Moore, is on the cover for for your eyes only. But the main issue, 
highlight here is the interview with Kurt Russell and Adrian Barbeau, the stars of Escape from New York, Survivors of the Future. But Escape from New York is such a seminal film, and I'm going to tell you why. Obviously, in 1981, Kurt Russell was known as, uh, you know, a Disney film official, you know, a pedestrian of like the computer wore tennis shoes and the world's strongest man. But Kurt Russell went on to make a TV movie with John Carpenter for about Elvis Presley. And it got phenomenal ratings and Kurt Russell was spectacular. John Carpenter said, well, this is the guy for my next movie. He's got to play Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken being a uh, lone wolf type survivor of World War III and a uh, kind of a one-man army. They'd considered other folks like Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson, but even by 1981, they were considered too old for the part, and the uh, part was very... uh, You needed an athlete, somebody who could get in there. Kurt Russell mixes this up with a 325-pound wrestler, and they take baseball bats with nails in them and, and attack each other in basically a boxing ring. Phenomenal. Anyway... The film is, uh, if I may go so far as to say, it's kind of the ancestor or the grandfather of the John Wick films. Who else do we know is a one-man killing machine who's probably an ex-veteran who goes out and takes on every hitman in a certain unspecified city? Well, that would be John Wick, Keanu Reeves. Who else goes out and can just take out a a horde of uh, murderous uh, assassins and succeed every time. Uh, John Wick's legend looms large, but his DNA is all Snake Plissken. The only thing Keanu's missing is an eye patch. Well, he is missing half a finger. So, you know, as far as a body part being gone, John Wick did lose a finger. But if you look at John Wick in those three movies, you can see almost uh, a roadmap from where Snake Plissken leaves off. It's incredible. But in the first part of the article, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell praise each other about how much they consider each other uh, good friends as well as a great actor and a great director. So we, you know, do the puff piece where they say they're really uh, honored to work with one another. And it shows on the screen. Obviously, they like each other. And other lesser known uh, cast members, Ernest Borgnine spoke praise highly, I should say, of John Carpenter. Uh, Lee Van Cleef from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, as well as Isaac Hayes. And, of course, Adrian Barbeau, who was the uh, wife of the director at the time. She obviously loved the guy. So John Carpenter, his legend loomed large even in 1981. Of course, he'd go on to direct The Thing, and uh, I think he also did Escape from L.A. He's done so many pictures, Near Dark. I mean, the guy is just phenomenal. But, uh, you know, if you look at his body of work, he uh, he's really done a spectacular job of uh, directing pictures that you go back to and consider classics. Me being, of course, a big fan of uh, The Thing. I I think that movie's just, as you, if you listen to my previous uh, podcast review, you know that I think the, the Thing is one of the finest films ever done by John Carpenter. Anyway, uh, back to the article. Kurt Russell speaks about the character. He says, Snake Plissken, he's an interesting character, and over the course of the film, you'll come to find he's more than a one-dimensional, one-man destruction machine. My feeling is that he's a guy who's getting through each day. He's a survivor. I don't know if there's been a character much like Snake before. I think the audience will pull for him because he's trying to accomplish something. I don't think he'll work his way into anybody's heart, though, such as perhaps John Wayne did in The Searchers. He's a fairly cold person, but to me, he's a very sensitive 
He's living in a colder society, and it's an imagined society as well. The fantasy of what the situation could be like in New York City in 1997 changes his whole outlook. So let's talk about that. From the perspective of 2022, this film was made in 1981, and they speculate by 1997 we'd already have a World War III and that we would make Manhattan Island a penal colony for the uh, whole of America's escape uh, of convicts and that a president would get would fly over that penal colony and his plane would get shot down and he would become a hostage. That's kind of a great uh, rendering of the future that didn't happen. But where is it like that now? In 19 I'm sorry, in 2022, Minneapolis maybe where they defunded the police, where it's a crime-ridden city. Maybe we look to Chicago in the uh, more stark regions where they uh, have 100 murders a day. I'm exaggerating, but you've got a, a Mayor Lori Lightfoot who cannot uh, contain all the criminal activity in one particular section of Chicago. And uh, they refuse to call the National Guard to come and help in any way. And the citizens are murdering each other with uh, no repercussions. Where's that happening? In 2022, maybe? So this movie... Maybe it didn't get the exact time frame right, but it sure did uh, forecast the future in certain events. A whole Would you ever see a time where you'd say, let's defund the police and then it would uh, crash society like it has? Well, this movie uh, prophes- prophesied it. Isn't that crazy? So John Carpenter, again, he's kind of a, uh, he's kind of a prophet. And uh, again, Snake is the kind of a hero we haven't seen yet. He's an ex-World War III war hero. If you take a guy who's been a hero of a war and hasn't that hasn't been fought yet and put him in a situation we've never seen before, he certainly has to be different. So here we are on the cusp of a World War III, possibly with uh, Putin's threatening uh, nuclear uh, weapons uh, usage in Ukraine or possibly even America. Um, we kind of, again, we see the future coming to pass today. It's crazy, isn't it? He also says of Pliskin, he's basically a loner who doesn't have a real relationship with any other characters in the picture. He uses the other people because they have information he needs in order to find the president. Other than that, he's not interested in anybody else. One of the other people he uses is hard-bitten convict named Maggie, played by Carpenter's wife, Adrian Barbeau. Another example of his unusual casting. Maggie is a strong woman who does anything to survive. Part of her ability to survive is based upon her being desirable to men who are going to protect her inside the prison. So her costume becomes one of her weapons. She also melts down batteries to use the tin to make silver nail polish, which she wears on very long nails, thus turning them into weapons. Adrian Barbeau goes on to say she, the character, lives with a character named Brain, played by Harry Dean Stanton, another wonderful actor. Harry Dean Stanton, where do I begin? I can't even tell you how many films... He's done and how much uh, he means to me. Go see the movie Repo Man. Get back with me. Harry Dean Stanton inside a library with an oil rig in the middle of the room, which supplies the rest of the island with fuel. She has a romantic relationship with him based on the fact that as long as she's with him, she survives. I don't think she was necessarily madly attracted to him when they met or even loves him now. Snake asks Brain for help in getting the president out, so we throw in with him. She goes on to say, portraying a character so unlike herself presented Barbeau with many challenges, not the least of which involved her required expertise with a gun. Maggie, the character, is supposed to be dynamite with a 357 Magnum. 
so I had to learn how to use one. I went to a firing range and shot at a paper figure. I found it very hard to comprehend that the projectile, which came out and made a little hole in a piece of paper, could also be directed at a human being and could mean that human being would no longer exist. I didn't like it for that reason. After the first day, I came home with the worst backache I've ever had from the tension involved in learning to shoot it. On the second day, I walked in, picked up the gun, hit a bullseye right off, then reloaded and hit another bullseye. I haven't used it since the film, and I hope I never will again. Obviously, she was kind of an anti-gun crusader even back then. But let me say this. I am a professional armed security uh, supervisor and armed guard, armed whatever. If you're going to go out and learn to use a weapon, go out and do it right. Go under the proper, uh, find a trained weapons instructor. Go out and shoot a gun. Go understand the logistics. Always keep your finger off the trigger finger. Off the trigger, I should say. Never point at anything you do not wish to destroy. Use the gun wisely, please, I beg you. Too many idiots come out here, oh, I've got a gun, I'm going to go shoot. Doesn't work that way, folks. Does not work that way. Please be safe with any firearm. Um, I don't believe in gun control per se, but I do believe it'd be like if you're going to get a driver's license. What do you do? You go out and you uh, go get instructor to train you how to drive a car. I believe the same should apply to a gun. If you're old enough and responsible enough to own a weapon, you go out and you seek someone to train you so you understand what you're dealing with. You don't just go buy a weapon and say, well, I can shoot in plinky cans. You may kill someone. So her naivety back in 1981 of, oh, I went to the gun range and shot some paper targets. No, no. Go out and get yourself trained. It'd be like anything. If you want to learn something, if you want to learn computers, you get someone to instruct you in computers. If you want to learn how to drive a car, same thing. You learn by hiring someone to teach you. Same should be applied to gun usage. I'm all for freedom of, uh, you know, the, uh, the right to own a weapon, but I'm also for the right to be taught how to own the weapon. You can't just go out there and blindly say, well, I have a gun now, a durr. No, no, no. Doesn't work that way. Anyway, back to the uh, article. Slugging it out. Russell likewise had to go into training for his role, but even with a background as a natural athlete, he had played baseball. The rugged action sequences occasionally got the better of him. Russell says, I knew it would be a very physical picture, so I spent four, hour, four months in advance lifting weights and running to get in shape for it. I also did most of my own stunts because I thought it would make a big difference in the final product even though I cut myself up a, a bit, a lot. One scene in particular was a bizarre gladiator-type fight that was really grueling. I fought a guy who weighed 320 pounds, and we used trash can lids and baseball bats with real nails in them. Because of the way it was shot, it would have ruined the timing of the sequence to have cut it up and inserted stuntmen. I worked it out the day before with my stuntman, but it was still like stepping into the ring for an entire day and slugging it out. It was brutal, and I just got beaten to death. Not every actor would be willing to undergo such abuse to preserve the authenticity of the performance. But for Russell, it's just one instance among many of his loyalty to Carpenter. He says, I agree with all the nice things they have s- that have been said about John by the critics. But on top of that, as far as I'm concerned, he's just a great guy. During the next 10 to 15 years, I think he'll grow as a director, should, and probably go through a period in which he'll go beyond the commercial appeal he's able to achieve now and make movies which are more than just fun to watch, which is true. He did go on 
There was one film he didn't get to make, Diablo the Western, which I would have loved to have seen. I, I bet that would have been spectacular. But uh, the rest of the article goes on to say that uh, even though Kurt Russell likes science fiction, he's not a big sci-fi film guy, sorry, science fiction film guy. He does like reading uh, authors of science fiction, such as Heinlein. He likes real. He likes the science fiction based on reality. Adrian Barbeau, on the other hand, is not a fan. She says uh, she's really not that interested in uh, science fiction or horror or anything like that. That she appears in the movies, but she uh, says not only wasn't she interested in science fiction and fantasy when she was growing up, but she didn't have much interest in horror either. Which is, you know, neither here nor there. You don't have to be a fan of the genre to be a good actor or actress in said films. It's understood that, you know, they went on to make a classic. And I would argue sometimes people who don't have an interest in those genres make it better because they're acting from a place of authenticity. They don't believe in the situation that's going on, yet they make it real because they're taking their real natural responses that, you know, how is this happening to me? And, and actually... Uh, creating what's what I call verisimilitude, believability. And uh, that actually helps the picture, I feel. Anyway, that's Escape from New York, and uh, happy uh, Starpod Log Day to you. Hello, I'm Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. Whenever I want to hear about classic science fiction... I turn on StarPod Log. Hi, I'm Matt Sherman for StarPod Log, covering today the wonderful StarLog interview article, Derek Meddings, The Man Who Creates the Magic for James Bond. I'd like to focus on some of the many special effects in one of my favorite James Bond films, 1981's Few Eyes Only. This film first thrilled me when I was a kid. I've loved it ever since. It adds plenty of Ian Fleming's original brilliant concepts to a great cast, beautiful exotic locations, very fun stunts and chases, and really quality humor. Anchoring the special effects were Bond legend and Oscar nominee Derek Meddings. He did tremendous work with miniatures and practical effects back in the days before powerful computers were used frequently to do CGI film effects. Meddings, who worked on six James Bond films, impressed upon the Bond producers how cunning miniatures could be used, saving a lot of time, a lot of money on full-size film constructions, full-size Bond vehicles, full-size effects. So they might create a snowy landscape, as Meddings and his team did for Goldeneye, 1995 starring Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, where the Russian snowy location of a secret base was so small a person could walk across it in a few steps with everything from the satellite base itself down to miniature snowy trees, miniature radar satellite installations, miniature Soviet-painted oil barrels were installed. And then Meddings would cleverly insert footage of live actors, models, again on a small scale, practical effects in a small scale, explosions, to create on the big screen a convincing raid by fighter jets. The Soviet fighter jets crash into the satellite and explode, and... Uh, even a sled dog team pulls the heroine across the scene in this miniature set and completely fools your eyes on the big screen or the small screen. Now, personally, I have to tell you, not only were the Bond miniature effects highly impressive always, they look better than the CGI effects of most of the films today. 1981's Few Eyes Only 
is beloved by many of us fans. It's often said to be Roger Moore's best performance as James Bond, which is saying something since he did a great job from the get-go and on all seven of his Bond films. For Your Eyes Only is down to earth. Literally down to earth because the prior Bond film Moonraker in 1979 went to outer space. And that's also a metting success story. He created a giant space vehicle with the famous designer Ken Adam. It had to launch its rocket engines in space and begin to rotate to create artificial gravity. There's a fight in space with uh, Russian and American astronauts fighting the bad guys. There are even space shuttles in the film so impressive taking off two years before they actually did with the Challenger in April 1981. You feel like you're at Cape Kennedy when you're watching the film, even on my 50-inch TV with surround sound. It's like watching the Challenger take off, only Derek Meddings did it two years before it ever did. Moonraker was loved by critics. It was very big at the box office. It had a spectacular series of set pieces around the world. It spent a lot of money on its budget. Even the advertising was big, and I was thrilled as a kid to see 24-sheet posters, as big as my house, and standees, these huge standees of Roger Moore and the Bond gals, and amazing. But with even the posters, displays, and commercials big, they had to bring the budget down and they wanted to root it in more of a thriller for the next film, Fear Eyes Only. So Fear Eyes Only, as I said, down to earth. And director John Glenn still wanted to put in the verve and the dash of the great stunts, despite the film being more rooted as a spy thriller. He saw a youth playing with one of the very first ever remote control helicopter toys. So he put Bond in a helicopter flying about London, that's unusual because normally Bond globetrots. He's a foreign agent. He's MI6, so he leaves London. But here he was being challenged in London by his arch nemesis, Ernst Blofeld, controlling Bond remotely. The Bond producers had no copyright or uh, intellectual right to use Blofeld, but they stuck a bald man with a white cat in a wheelchair, and everyone knew it was, Bond, it was Blofeld who had been injured by Bond in Diamonds of Forever. Very clever. But Bond has to break the remote control of the helicopter and take over to save himself while the helicopter is flying through a British factory with girders everywhere threatening him in this tiny space. So here, because the helicopter did a lot of work, but it couldn't possibly fly that tight inside a building, the stunts included an almost large or full-size helicopter rather than a tiny model mounted on a gantry as we see in the Starlog interview article inside a set made to look like the factory where Blofeld tried to kill Bond, another Meddings first. Now, there's a wild ski chase scene in Fear Eyes Only, actually several of them in the film, and they have incredible close-ups to achieve this effect where you feel like you're on the motorcycle riding with the bad guy in the snow or skiing with James Bond. Daredevil camera operators, as they always do in the Bond films, would hang in tight onto motorcycle drivers going very fast in the snow, and others would ski backwards and on one ski while holding cameras. Bond had long employed these amazing ski cameramen. And there's even an amazing stunt in Fear Eyes Only where James Bond skis down a bobsled run just behind a four-man bobsled team going full speed. This is one of the most humorous moments in all the Bonds. It's really well done. It's clever. The rear bobsledder taps his mate on the shoulder, astounded to see a man skiing behind them at full run. The others look back and turn, tap, 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 look, 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 which itself is an incredibly dangerous thing to do on a bobsled run, but they did it. Perhaps the most amazing stunt using a Meddings practical effect is when James Bond climbs a mountain to a monastery. It's in Corfu. It serves as a villain's lair. 
And just when he's about ready to reach the peak, he's literally climbing up to the top of the mountain with his hands. A bad guy cruelly removes Bond's last piton, so Bond will plunge to his death. Yes, you could shoot James Bond with a gun, but he wants him to fall to his death horribly. And stuntman and skier Rick Sylvester, Sylvester being a legend in the industry for skiing off a Canadian mountain thousands of feet high on a very blizzardy day using a parachute for 1977's Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me, Sylvester, for few eyes only, fell 120 feet through the air for the mountain stunt on one rope. And the issue was they thought his rope could easily snap. So Meddings and the FX team slowed Sylvester's rate of fall a little bit by using a rope and pulley kind of sandbag system. It still looks great on screen, and it's a tremendous stunt. And here's another special effect, one of my favorites, actually. Roger Moore had vertigo. He hated heights. But he bravely spent up to hours at a time in various holdalls and these tiny ledges on the mountainside to help make his Bond film look great. He did a lot of stunts. He also was a fabulous skier and skis a lot in the film, very gracefully. When Sir Roger passed in 2017, theaters around the world showed Fear Eyes Only Again on the big screen as one of his tributes. It looked terrific on the big screen. The mountain climbing scenes, the skiing, the motorcycle chases, the helicopter stunts, everything looked and sounded wonderful and still held up on the big screen thanks to the special effects, the stuntmen, and Roger Moore's performance. So... At my own website, bondfanevents.com, my wife Janine Sherman and I, who live in Gainesville, Florida, pursue the locations of Bond and many wonderful things. And we host fan gatherings of what we like to call collecting collectors. Not only do we welcome Star Podlog listeners to our home to visit with us and see our James Bond room, I've been collecting props and rare books for many, many years and love to show you the local sites, including Ian Fleming locations near my home in Florida. That's right. We do a lot of single-day events, we do museum shows, we do library shows, seminars, symphonic concerts. Hard to believe, but next month is our 25th multi-day James Bond fan event. In October, we're going to be hosting people at an all-inclusive resort in Jamaica. It was used in two of the Bond films. It offers free scuba, free scuba instruction, free golf at Ian Fleming's home course, 24-7 food and drink. And like all our multi-day fan events, we feature actors, authors, and filmmakers from the Bond series meeting you, the public, in person. We take fans on these trips to dozens of book and film locations. We have five tours during our time in Jamaica. We're taking a private beach tour. We're taking people to Ian Fleming's home at GoldenEye Resort, which is very difficult to do. They usually bar guests from coming in from the outside. We're going to spend a day at Ian Fleming's world and touring other locations. And we have separate tours for the new one, No Time to Die, Live and Let Die and Dr. No, all across Jamaica. We're even more excited, actually, that we have our next three events after that all planned and scheduled, starting in February in Cairo, Egypt. We will be touring book and film locations from The Spy Who Loved Me, taking fans to a dozen sites from the Bond film, taking them to exotic Cairo, having fabulous Middle Eastern food and drink, and you can join us. You need not stay at our host hotel to join us, but our host hotel's in the middle of the Nile River, overlooking the beautiful Falaka boats as just like in the movie The Spy Who Loved Me in a great location. We have a Cairo, Egypt event. We have 18 people signed up so far with deposits and flights. We'd love to have you join us in February for our first ever Africa tour. And our 27th and 28th multi-day fan events. You'll see them at bondfanevents.com. We'll be unveiling them next month in a special presentation. We already have 2023 and 2024 fan tours set up. So thanks to Star Podlog. I'm Matt Sherman. And thanks for being a James Bond fan. 
This is part two of the George Lucas Saga, chapter two, entitled The Cold Fish Strikes Back. With me is my special guest, Brian Ramsdale, from the Star Wars Collector Podcast. All right, so we already found out in the last interview with George Lucas uh, that he's not one to really do interviews. That's why we don't see a lot of interviews in Starlog Magazine with him. He likes to take a back seat, and he has people that promote the film for him. But when asked the question by then-publisher Kerry O'Quinn, he asked, he asked George, he said, if at 16 you had no idea you can direct movies, what were you passively interested in doing in terms of a career? And he mentioned previously that he liked racing cars and he likes fixing cars. So I'm going to ask you, how would your life change if George Lucas went into that career path instead of directing? Ooh, that's a tough one. Because uh, other than Star Wars, since it came out whenever I was three, it's really hard. You know, I don't know what I would have been interested in as far as like, like I am with Star Wars. I mean, I kind of like Star Trek a little bit, you know, and I like Transformers, He-Man, that kind of stuff. But I don't know if it would affect me as much. It just, I mean, it's, without knowing for sure, because I this, you know, because Star Wars does exist, it's kind of hard to say. And and he mentions that it is, it is a far step. A lot of people look at it and saying like, "Wow, those are two extremes, <laughs> right?" It's not like he had interest in acting or writing something within the realm of movies it, it was totally extreme and so Carrie O'Quinn asks him like well what was the evolution what were the steps and and part of it was he spent some time working in a hospital and then he realized that it wasn't smart for him to be a race driver then he had an accident of his own that almost took his life so yeah he's definitely first-hand had, experience yeah he yeah. had first-hand experience on what that can do yeah he goes into this article talking about that he drove a Le Mans. Yeah. But he had been interested in photography and in art. And so the being interested in one thing led to another. Photography led into filmmaking school, directing. He saw that he that this medium of film, he could tell stories in a way that he was unable to in other areas. And and those of us who know the background of George Lucas's dialogue skills, and I say skills with quotes, <laughs> realize that it's good that he had an interest in photography. Yeah, and it's also good that he had people behind him that could do that kind of work because, yeah, his uh, his skills for dialogue was not that great. I mean, Han Solo, you know, Harrison Ford himself even said, you can write this crap, but you can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in film school that he teamed up with his friend, Francis Ford Coppola. And you just think about that generation of filmmakers, like going to school together. Just those two. There are others as well that blossomed. And it's just amazing that these guys were honing their craft together. Yeah, because, I mean, even in that inner circle of those guys, you know, you also had Steven Spielberg, uh, Brian De Palma, you know, those type directors who were all together real close-knit. And, you know, they fed off each other, actually helped each other with uh, actors and stuff like that. If one of them would take one and another one would take a different one or something like that. And when you think about the late 70s, early 80s genre films, uh, films with intensity, films that were known for taking chances, th these are the directors, the names that come up. And they're all contemporaries of George. Oh, yeah, all, every single one of them. And they, heck, they even took vacations together. So that's yeah. how close they were. He mentions that American Graffiti was the springboard financially that allowed him to 
make Star Wars. How do you think that was pretty smart in his part to do something that he was able to work into the general masses that he knew that he could at least get his foot into the door and get his name out there? Yeah, he he did. He was you know he he was unique in the way that whenever he did Star Wars, he said, "I'm not going to take a salary. I am going to take sequel rights, you know, and all of the uh, the rights to." like toys and all that kind of stuff, instead of taking a salary, which nobody at that time did. And no, and all thought he was stupid for doing it, but he was a genius. And, and for the fact that he relates in this article that he was took him two and a half years to create Star Wars. And if you remember the early versions, The Star Wars, uh, Luke Starkiller, it, it was virtually a different story. <laughs> It was so radically different. So to realize that he made a lot of tweaks, a lot of changes over those two and a half years. I'm going to do another what if. What if he didn't spend that much time on it and just went with his initial proposal? How do you think things would pan out? I don't know if it would have been a whole lot different just because I've read the scripts and stuff from those and also the comics. They come out with a comic book. The Dark Horse comics, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they come out with that, and it was, I mean, it was a little bit different, but it still had the same theme overall, I think. So I I think it would have done, you know, maybe just as well. It's just, you know, that's always one of those what-if things, you know, like they're doing now with Marvel. You know, what if this and what if that? You know, you you just never know what's going to happen. Carrie O'Quinn says, so, George, you don't think that Star Wars is important in that aspect, on an exciting aspect? And George replies saying, well, if suddenly the space program gets a lot of money 15 years from now, I'll say, gee, maybe I had something to do with it. Maybe I helped out in some way or another. But it's hard to tell at this point if Star Wars will have that effect or not. So (laughs) there's the implication here that Star Wars was going to inspire kids to look into the real world space program. I never viewed Star Wars in that sense. Did you? Uh, not really, because I didn't think it was possible to have ships like that at any time in my lifetime. Yeah. So I never really thought about it like, like that, but I can understand how at least it could inspire someone to be an astronaut, to try to go, like, to the moon. Or, you know, who knows, we might even make it to Mars in our lifetime. You never know. But, yeah, I could see where it could, it could definitely inspire somewhat of a career or path towards going into space. And constantly throughout the years... It, it just It's funny looking at something from 40 years ago, comparing it to our sensibilities now. Virtually everyone views Star Wars as a space fantasy. No one nitpicks it for the inaccuracies with regards to the physical dynamics of things. But at this time, in 1981, there were still a lot of hard science fiction books being written. There was that element of hard science fiction in the movies. People were looking for more of a reality. And George Lucas just doesn't want to hear it. He says, people tend to take these things so seriously and get carried away when they should just realize that it's something to enjoy, like a sunset. You don't have to worry about the significance of it. You just have to say, hey, that was great. Now, I, being a huge Star Trek fan, I don't want real science in Star Wars. I want the real science more for Star Trek. How do you feel about George's? stand that hey it's just a movie get over it well yeah definitely i mean he he has this genre of star wars being science fiction fantasy rather than real life adventures so i mean it 
it feels like it needed to be different. He also mentions in closing that he has a philosophy in life, and it's this. When you boil down the philosophies, they become very personal. I've mentioned the philosophy that runs through the films a few times, and I've been criticized. One of the main thrusts in all the films is the Horatio Alger concept, the fact that if you apply yourself and work real hard, you can get what you want accomplished. Your only limitations are your willingness to do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, that's the way everybody should live their life. You know, the only thing unattainable is what you don't try to attain. So, you know, that's got to be everybody's mantra when you're trying to do something you want to do. Otherwise, you'll never get it done. And you know, you have an awesome podcast, the Star Wars Collectors Podcast. Tell listeners a little bit about it. We're going to put a link to it in our show notes. Okay, well, we talk about all things collectible. I mean, anything from toys to comics to patches, anything that you can think of. You know, we talk about, we even had podcasts on the M&M toys, you know, M&M Star Wars toys. So, the rapper? The, no, M&M's, the candy. <laughs> we talk about, you know, those kind of things all the time. We, we've been around since December of 2015. We do it monthly. So give us a listen. In 1981 was a huge year for video games. Let's talk about some of those hits. In the arcades? Defender? I love playing that game. That was a, one of my favorites. Talk about huge hits. What about Donkey Kong? Massive. Who would figure that Mario, who at this time was a construction worker, would make his debut here? Frogger? Galaga? Turbo? Tempest? That was one of my brother's favorites. He loved that because it had a spinner controller. Gorf? And for the Atari 2600. Okay, this is where we, we see that Activision's really coming into play. Freeway? Kaboom? Stampede? Asteroids? Missile Command? Super Breakout? And Warlords. Yeah, all great games. <laughs> To bite your finger, it's a Dracula game. The set, the clock, just try your luck. If Dracula is cape open, you have to put your finger in his mouth and press the lever. If he leaves a mark on your finger, you have to start over again. He didn't bite me! If you can sneak all the way around Dracula's house, you'll win the game. You're not supposed to bite people. It's a Dracula game. I bought to bite your finger from Hasbro. Starlog Magazine, issue number 50, cover date, September 1981. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Raiders, raves. David Grady from Boston, Massachusetts says, I've never been to a movie where the audience got so involved. Ten times as many cheers than for Star Wars. Now you saw this in the movie theaters, right? Yeah. Oh, I remember the excitement was was so high for this movie. It's true. There was a lot of audience interaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was. this was such a big movie. I mean, of course. Mary Madachi from Columbus, Ohio says, When Indy Jones takes care of that Arab swordsman, I was surprised to be unable to hear the next two minutes of the film soundtrack. 
People were too busy screaming, applauding, and just plain falling out of their chairs with laughter. See the film. You'll love it. I distinctly remember my grandfather laughing so hard. And when my grandfather would laugh, he would have this motion where he'd take his hand and he'd slap his thigh. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are on another episode of StarPod Log. My name is Michael Havens. And I'm Andrea Havens. We are the husband and wife team that bring you ICCCon and... Uh, I see Toys Nashville. A whole bunch of Star Wars stuff, as a matter <laughs> of fact. But uh, what we're bringing you today is we are here on StarPod Log because we are going to read... Uh, it's the StarLog interview um, on Jeremy Bullock. The Empire's silent stalker, Boba Fett, puts aside his Wookiee scalps and unplugs his jetpack long enough to tell us about the actor behind the helmet. Um, I figure the way we're going to do this, because we want to talk about this article, is we're going to just read through it and we'll stop at certain points and talk about how those different things affect us or what we collect and stuff like that. I'm a huge Boba Fett collector. Andrea? I collect Jawas. Yeah, well, Leia's too. <laughs> I collect Leia's too, And a yes. bunch of modern weird stuff that I don't know what it is. Well, Rebels. I mean, not a bunch of modern, well, but... A bunch of rebel stuff. Rebel you even stuff. have those little micro guys. What are they? I do. Those are the, um... Galactic heroes. Galactic... Those things galaxy are. heroes, galaxy. yeah. Yeah, you like them. Though. I do. All right, let's hop into this. This is by Alan Brender. In The Empire Strikes Back, Jeremy Bullock is the evil, stealthy, chief bounty hunter, Boba Fett. A proud possessor of Wookiee scalps and battle wounds. In real life, Bullock is a charming, boyish-looking, blonde-haired, blue-eyed British actor who counts Disney films and TV sitcoms among his acting credits. Uh, Jeremy Bullock, we have met him before. Uh, we met him at Celebration one year. He was a really, really nice guy. We hung out with him. I hung out with him at the bar. I don't think you were at that bar. I was not at the um, bar. You were not at that bar. But no, he was a sweetheart, and we were going to have him out to ICCC, but unfortunately, uh, his health took a turn, and... Uh, we never got that chance, but he was a really, really nice guy. So I agree with the first paragraph. Oh, <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> Bullock started acting when he was 10 years old. I was a typical freckled-faced, sandy-haired lad. <laughs> he says during the those adolescent years, he played in hundreds of series aimed at kids, including a set... The second episode of Doctor Who. Well, I did not know that. You're a Doctor Who. I am a Doctor Who fan. Doctor yes. Whovian. Is it a Whovian? <laughs> it's a Whovian. Something yes. Like that. He's been an actor now for 25 years. You can work out my age from that. He adds jokingly. Among the movies in which he has appeared: Mary, Queen of Scots, Summer Holiday, The Virgin of the Gypsies, Escape from the Dark, and Oh Lucky Man. He's been in two James Bond films. He was Q's assistant for Your Eyes Only. Awesome. And uh, he was also in The Spy Who Loved Me. Again, a small part. They put these charges under me, and I get ripped apart after 20 minutes. The story of my life, he says with an uh, ingratiating smile. Uh, Go ahead. You got the next one there, dear. Right. In television, Bullock has played the Spectrum from Hotspur in a fairly recent production of Richard II to one of the lead characters in a zany British comedy, Agony in England. When The Empire Strikes Back was being filmed in London in 1979, Bullock went to the studio to talk to George Lucas and Jerry Kurtz. Gary Kurtz, my bad. There was talk of this new character, not a big character, but a new one. I arrived at the studio not knowing what was going to happen. They asked me to put on this costume, which I donned and thought, this is strange. (laughs) (laughs) There was an odd 
sort of Wookiee scalp hanging from my shoulder, which I originally put under my helmet because I thought it was some kind of hairpiece. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> it took a long time, but I finally got the costume on. Then I walked onto the set. My first meeting with George Lucas was actually in the costume. He said, you look fantastic. I can see George Lucas saying that. Right. How cool would that be to make something that you always wanted and just walk and out the see door it at you? In real life, yeah, that's yeah, crazy. That'd be cool. I didn't know how to react to everything, uh, to everything or what he wanted me to say, even if he wanted me to speak. Everybody was on the set because they were actually in the middle of doing something with the snow creature. <laughs> <laughs> everything seemed to stop, and there was this marvelous feeling of a presence of somebody else. All the crew looked around at this new character. I thought, he, this character, obviously looked good. He was He's the one that got away. There were bullet holes all over his armor and the shredded cape. He got these Wookiee scalps, so he's obviously done pretty well over the years in the galaxy. Lucas chatted with me and said, This looks marvelous. As far as I'm concerned, you're fine. At the time, the character, Boba Fett, was just one of the bounty hunters coming down to capture Han Solo and take him away. It wasn't a part I tested for. I have tested for a lot of different films, and neither I've gotten them or I haven't. The part of Boba Fett was very slow, very stealthy. And I remember the director saying to me the first day before we started, this character has to be a very cool customer. Imagine you're, taking down the, talking, uh, imagine you're walking down the street in a western town. He's quick, but stealthy. I see a lot of that in The Mandalorian as well. Yes. You know, with even the marshal and everything. Yeah. Even anybody that wears the Boba Fett uniform, that uniform kind of goes with that, I don't know, cowboy style. Right. You know? That definitely has a Western feel. Can you imagine, though, poor Jeremy Bullock thought, you know, his character was going to last forever and he was in... Seven, seven seconds. <laughs> it was short-lived. Short it was short-lived. He's good, like, this though. is going to be great. You know, I'm, I've been protected and everything, so I'm going to be forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's been shot so many times he could get away with it, you know? But, yeah, no, it, uh, all it took was a stick in the wrong place on a jetpack, huh? Uh, the next uh, section is speaking for Boba. Bullock practiced various voices for the character, including one was the, that was very mechanical sounding. But in the voice, in the end, his voice was dubbed. They went back to America. Bullock says to do a lot of the sound stuff. I'm not going to stand and say, "Why didn't you use my voice?" If I used my voice as it is now, it wouldn't be right. They used a voice similar to the one I tried to do. As I see it, the character has his mask and his mystery. It doesn't matter who does the voice. I agree with that completely. Um, and obviously everybody agrees with it because yes. nobody even remembers the original voice because it's now Tamara Morrison right. dubbed over everything. Well, I mean, just the way they did with Darth Vader and James Earl Jones, you know? I mean, yeah. they used his voice. He wasn't in the costume. Well, shout out to James Earl Jones who just uh, signed away He just away retired, his yes. Yeah. But all that means is that he's letting them use uh, his voice his and voice. Like, emulators and stuff yeah. like that, which I think will keep Darth Vader alive, which is wonderful. I agree. Yes, um, they, they said that he's... They just have all of his parts, basically, where they can now make words with what he has recorded. And yeah. Well, so yeah, I think that's very cool. It, yes. It's still, it's still him. <laughs> <laughs> I had a real letter from a girl, which was quite funny. She wrote, is it your real voice? You send me into a deep swoon. <laughs> Mind you, if it isn't your voice, I won't stop loving you. Although this actual role was not very large, and his voice was never used for any of the lines, Bullock says that he couldn't believe the number of letters he received. I get fan mail from other things, but not such a rush. The first batch came in August, about 25, then another lot came, 50 letters, then 100, and so on it went. The only other time that Bullock received anywhere near the number of letters he received for his role of Boba Fett was when he was in the popular British soap opera, one time... 
Oh, it doesn't say the name of it. One time while on that soap opera, his father in the serial died. Some fans had sent him a wreath and their condolences. Now he says, somewhat jestingly, many people have written for me to send them something. Can you snip off a bit of your tie? Do you have a shirt we can have? All sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing. Uh, whenever the guest stars sign my truck, they always say, I've never signed a truck before. Yeah. Like, well, go ahead, um, most of the letter writers who have written because of his Boba Fett characterization are between the ages of 5 and 25. Shenanigans. I, that's an older article. It is an older article. Well, it's from 1981, yeah. Fair enough. enough. Quite a lot of women, (laughs) (laughs) which is always nice. I reply to each letter. Several people have written me three or four times via America, and their letters get to me maybe two months later. A lot of letters have come from six-year-olds. They write in their scrawling handwriting, Dear Bob Fat or Bubble Fett or whatever. We think you're terrific. Your friend Brad Hacko. So I write back, Dear Brad, thank you very much. I will send a photograph soon. May the dark side of the force be with you. Boba Fett. Ooh, Boba Fett went right over the dark side, huh? <laughs> How about that? Because he was always pretty neutral. He I was. he wasn't, huh? He, I guess not. I guess we're finding out that he wasn't neutral. <laughs> Evil will always triumph. He's dumb. Uh, just underneath I write my real name, Jeremy Bullock. Most of the letters from older fans ask for such things. What are you going to do in the next film? Will you capture him? Will you kill him? Who are you anyway? Some, Bullock adds, have even written me saying, I'm sure you could be the other. I wrote back and said, that's very kind, but I don't know what's in the writer's minds. So, <laughs> The other? The other. What do you know. think they mean by that? What is the, the other? other? I don't the know. Other. I don't know. There is another. Ooh, there oh. we go. Go to speaking from the background. I yep. don't think that up. <laughs> but there is another, yeah. Well, that's sure cool. Another, yeah. So maybe he could have been the other. How cool is that to have experienced it when, like, Empire Strikes came out? Yeah. Empire Strikes Back came out, and you met Yoda, and he said there is another, and then they just left Left it hanging. hanging, yeah. It must have been really crazy. Um, and these people watching Game of Thrones nowadays think they got it tough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we don't Let me see. At the time of the interview, Bullock didn't know yet whether he would even be in the next film. Having been an actor for 25 years, you don't say, oh, that's lovely, I'm doing a next film, then I'm doing. Until you've been asked and things have been signed. Everything is very secret at the moment, which is quite right. (laughs) Very British. Yes. (laughs) There is so much about Empire that things should be kept quiet. A lot of actors in Revenge of the Jedi won't know what's happening even the day they start. I feel the more mysterious they keep it, the better it is. Wow, and so it was even still Revenge yeah. of the Jedi at that point. Which means he was on the list during Empire, or else he wouldn't have known that. If I do Revenge of the Jedi... Oh yeah, that's because this was after Empire. If I do, He says, gearing up, If I do Revenge of the Jedi, I shall play him exactly as before, stealthy and slow. Each turn of his head is slow. He's always aware of the people around him, and he'll have all that gear. He carries this gun. He has a jetpack, a rocket launcher. There's so much on his arms, all sorts of buttons he can press for laser rockets and things like that. It's rather like wearing armor from the Middle Ages, but with sophisticated science fiction gear. Goodness knows how we'll run away from anything with all that gear. He doesn't have to run away, he can fly away. (laughs) During the filming of Empire, Bullock says the jetpack was a very heavy burden to carry around. It weighed approximately 20 pounds. Wow. They they didn't really make that one out of No. When they would put it on me, I would suddenly dip right back. Every once in a while, the director would say, Are you okay, Jeremy? I'd say, Yes, but in fact, I was suffering. 
You can't complain, you just get on and do it. At any rate, I used to wear it for a quarter of an hour at the most, but it looked good, and it made me stand very straight. (laughs) (laughs) The helmet was another problem. The helmet was awesome, i got to say that. The helmet is the best helmet of any helmet ever. Uh, The helmet was another problem. It wasn't very heavy, but it was very hot. But I I reckon I didn't have it as bad as some of the others. David Prowse was very hot under the Darth Vader costume. Peter Mayhew, who plays Chewbacca, was stifling. And Anthony Daniels, I'm probably the least one to complain. <laughs> sure enough, <laughs> Anthony Daniels. Mine compared to theirs was very light. Still, it did take some 20 minutes to put together. One afternoon, the costume caused Bullock some embarrassment and discomfort. As he tells the story, I was so thirsty one afternoon that I drank a couple of pints of lager and had a light sandwich. Just as I finished that, they say, Okay, everybody, back on the set. Let's carry on with the freezer chase scene. So the dresser got, back, got me back in costume. The director said, Let's start with where you're walking down the stairs. It took a long time to set up the scene, about 20 minutes, and then two pints of lager had worked their way to my bladder. But I couldn't get out of my costume, so I had to hold it. You suddenly say in the middle of shooting a scene, that's already been set up, excuse me, can I relieve myself? I would have taken 20 minutes to get out of the costume and 20 minutes to put it on again. And everyone knew, changing the page, Everyone knew, though I was desperate to go, they all had made, they had to make remarks. I just had to suffer through it, but it made me laugh later. During the filming of the carbon freeze chamber, Bullock was greatly concerned about his footing. I was, I was walking down behind Han Solo, and I thought, if I slip now, I've had it. I'm going to destroy everything, because I couldn't see where I was going. I had these funny boots on with two spikes on the toes, and every now and then they would touch my foot, I would touch my foot down, and it would get caught and crossed. I thought I was going to be head over heels. <laughs> uh, early Who is the next one, uh, the next paragraph here. Aside from The Empire, Bullock has appeared in two other science fiction features. Both were episodes of the British sci-fi institution, Doctor Who. I did the, sec- I did the story of Doctor Who way back in 1962 when I was 16 years old. I was the leader of a race of children. They were a very intelligent race. We had the swept back hair, pointed ears, and sort of funny eyebrows on top of our foreheads. They blocked out our real eyebrows and put these eyebrows on top of our heads. The special effects didn't work at all. (laughs) (laughs) Ten years later, Bullock appeared in another segment of Doctor Who as a different character. But this time the series was into its third Doctor, John Pertwee, and special effects had had much improved. In this segment, Bullock says, I played Hal, the archer who is like Robin Hood character. The telephone box arrives, and there's Doctor Who, and all these people from the Middle Ages. I'm supposed to be a nice young man and a brilliant actor with long hair, tights, and all that. Suddenly, this creature from space arrives, and an ugly sort of lizard-looking creature. The only way I know how to kill this creature was to fire an arrow arrow from my bow into the tiny hole on the back of his neck. Right at the end of the series, I do kill him, and the Doctor goes off quite happy. Bullock said he recently spoke to the producer of Doctor Who, who told him, Look, it's been ten years since I did the last one, so I'm ready to come in again. He said, well, we'll see. There is a possibility. I've dropped the suggestion, and I hope they pick up on it. I feel that in 1982 is my time to come back into it again, because I would be ten years since I did the last one, and twenty years since I did the first. It's funny how he's talking about how he's hoping to get Doctor Who, because Boba Fett hasn't even taken off. Right. Yeah. I mean, Boba Fett, he was able to sign autographs forever. Um at 80 bucks an autograph at the time 75 80 bucks wow so, I mean, that's crazy no joke people yeah. wanted his autograph i haven't watched one <laughs> <laughs> covering your walls in your house uh, 
Should the producers ask Bullock to appear in a Doctor Who segment, he has already the idea of the type of character he would like to play. A masked creature. That would be nice. I've been seen in the other two. I think it could go on a mask this time, or just be a voice. Of all of Bullock, Bullock's roles, his two sons, ages 8 and 11, have enjoyed Boba Fett the most, even though they could not see their father's face in it. They were thrilled with this role, he explains. Better than Hamlet. I recently played Shakespeare all around the country. When I got home, their little faces were there, and they got the picture of Daddy up there as Boba Fett. Usually they take my acting career in stride. My oldest one, the 11-year-old, plays it down. He never says I'm involved in acting. But my little one tells his friends that his dad is a creature. <laughs> <laughs> and if they don't believe him, he tells them that his dad will come beat up their dads in costume. They love it. I think Boba Fett means more to them than anything I've ever done. The 11-year-old will say, I like to play... I'd liked that play you did, but with Boba Fett, there's more variety for them. It's worldwide. Bullock himself, loving having done the part, it's almost like the feeling of being a five-year-old, he explains, but taking it seriously because it is a job of work. You are carried away by these fantastic sets. I hope this won't be my last science fiction part, because I love it. Um, there you go. That is the article. Very good article about Boba Fett there, about Jeremy Bullock, and... Uh, I'm just flipping the page to make sure there's nothing else. Nope, that's it. And uh, that's really cool. So he didn't even know that Boba Fett would impact him like that. I don't know yeah. if he did very much afterwards. Um, but as far as creating something that people followed till the end of time, Boba Fett is that. I mean, it's one of the most popular characters in all of Star Wars. I collect it personally. I love Boba Fett. I have tons of them. Um, I like Andrea when they have. Boba <laughs> I like Boba Fett. I mean, yes, I like The Mandalorian. It was a great show, and um, you know, I I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the Marshal in The Mandalorian at wearing his suit. Armor, yeah. You know, I yeah, mean, it was armor. it was crazy when it first came out, and then you found out it wasn't Boba Fett. But you know, I'm. It, it's fun. I like it. Well, Boba Fett has inspired so many things. I mean, the rocket firing Boba Fett because of the mail away on the original Kenner action figures. That right. was a big thing that started, and then them telling people they couldn't have them. That was another thing. <laughs> Everyone that always wants it more when they can't have it. Ingrained in the mind. Yes. I'm sure you have people in the toy store all the time that come in and say, I had the one that shot the rocket. I do. Yeah. All the time. Uh, everyone had it. Everyone <laughs> had it. Everybody had it. But uh, they never actually did, and it was a uh, pre-production prototype. Where there are a bunch of them out there. I there think are. 120 yes. is the kind of ballpark number. Um, but they are around, and they're awesome. And... Uh, that added to the mystery of Boba Fett. Yes. And then with the books, I really started liking Boba Fett, Boba Fett with the... Uh, Bounty Hunter Tales. Bounty Hunter Tales, yeah. Bounty mm -hmm. Hunter Tales and J Tales from Jabba's Palace. And that was the Boba Fett that I knew, where he was, you know, honorable, almost like a... Uh, not oh. the dark side. Yeah, yeah, not <laughs> the dark side. When he said, you know, greetings from the dark side, I thought that was funny. No, more uh, like a Shogun warrior or something, you know, very, very... He had rules about what he did. Uh, but I collect Boba Fett. Boba Fett is an extremely popular, popular, popular character. I mean, it if you think very about it, popular. everything Star Wars, Boba Fett's somewhere on there. Yes. It's it's the most produced. Yes, it's no, even one. in the store, we, we sell a lot of Boba Fett, anything, everything. You Boba know, Fett, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, it's I very hard very to keep those out the house, yes. so I'm sorry about that, but... Uh, no, uh, even if I were to collect every single Boba Fett item ever, it's impossible. Yeah. There's everything. Sneakers, shoes, hats, coats. Uh, sunglasses, coats, yeah. backpacks. My backpack is a Boba Fett backpack. Yes. Um, 
it's it's wild, and it has spawned things like the Boba Fett series, like the Mandalorian series. Every single Mandalorian comes with the origination of Boba Fett. I mean, and they were very popular even in Clone Wars. So the Mandalorian thing has been around for a long time, um, and it's nonstop. Uh, we got a phone call coming in. We're going to go to Sorry. the calls. <laughs> Hello, caller. How may I help you? This is the. Boba we are Fett recording show. at the stores. So. We are recording at the store. We are on site. Icon. <laughs> But um, that's a phone call coming in, and that's somebody calling to see if we have any Boba Fett's for sale, <laughs> which is not a surprise. But uh, it was really wonderful. I love Star Podlog. We uh, love the guys over there. Very, very nice. Your show is great, and you've always been a wonderful support. And we can't wait to see you. When is, when right. is the con? May 26th through 28th, 28th 2023. <laughs> it's ICC Con Part V in 2023. It is our fifth. ICC time, and uh, not only is it going to be here, we'll give you a, a big time spoiler here for StarPod Log Podcast. We're going to tell you about uh, a little plan we have for ICC Con in the future. Um, what's going on is this year we not only got the convention space, much bigger convention space, so we're going to have the convention like we have, and it's going to be bigger and better than ever. It is. But at 6 p.m. when the convention normally closes, we're going to lock up the convention center with the convention park. And then what are we doing, Andrea? We are opening up the outside to a festival where you can see some bands play and maybe a magician and maybe a circus and some other things. Yeah, it's going to be a wild time and it's going to go on till 11 o'clock at night and we're going to be even playing some of your favorite movies on the big screen outside. So make sure to check out ICCCon at uh, www.icnashville.com. Check out Andrea's store, which has even modern and pops and whatnot. <laughs> Uh, things yes. I don't know about. IC Toys Nashville. We're at 2549 Lebanon Pike in Nashville. Also at Check out the Imperial Commissary. <laughs> That's where it all yes, started. The We're just a bunch of nerds that collect toys. Um, Facebook groups. Check out the Facebook groups, but it's www.imperialcommissary.com. Anyone that grows the hobby, and that's all it means to be part of the Imperial Commissary, is you teach, you learn, and you grow the hobby. And you guys check all those boxes. I'm Mark McCray, the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. And if you're not listening to our podcast, then you're missing out on amazing interviews with Larry Houston, Tom Tatawanovich, Keone Young, Michael Swanigan, Ned Hastings, Bill Gallier, Dan Gilvazan, Rob Lamb, and so many others. Kick back and let Dan Clink and I peel back the curtain on the animation industry. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast can be found on the ESO Network and all podcasting platforms. The Heavy Metal Story, or The Trials and Tribulations of Bringing Printed Fantasies to Life on Screen. Now this movie, Heavy Metal, I didn't see it when it first came out. It was a rated R animated feature film. Yeah, I didn't see it either until they re-released it later. And it was one of those things that I kind of wish that they would make this an annual or semi-annual movie. Maybe a series, because it was based off of the magazine. This magazine originally had European origins. When it came to the United States, it was titled Heavy Metal, which had nothing to do with music. That was just the title of the magazine. But it's all different types of visual medium, kind of like a comic book in a magazine format, but it wasn't limited to the style of what we would consider a sequential art. Just very unique short stories in a magazine and they did this in a movie format. So each segment was roughly 10 to 15 minutes long with different art styles. 
and there was a kind of a segue, a common theme running through them loosely. I mean, it was out there. It was so cutting edge for its time. So I guess when you read the magazine, was it marketed to teenagers? It totally was, because I remember the first time I saw it, I was in grade school, and yeah. I was at a Wawa, and they had a spinner rack there for comic books, and you'd go to the magazine aisle, and you'd see this heavy metal, and it had you know, graphic art in there. I mean, it had nudity. Oh, just like the movie. Just like the movie. Okay. Like the movie. Yeah. I mean, my young eyes just popped out of their heads when I saw this. <laughs> well, it, talking about the movie and the connection, it was just like the comic book. What do you think about the the graphicness of it? It, it was pretty shocking to see that <laughs> movie in a cartoon. Yeah. So, but I do remember it was an adult cartoon. Yeah. So, I mean, I I mean, it it was what they wanted it to be at the time. That's about all what I can say of it. And it was made for men, you could tell, right? Not as much made for women. Uh, <laughs> well, it has some dongs in there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you're clapping. Not your, as prominent. You're clapping your hands, <laughs> saying "Yay!" And of course, they had to put heavy metal music in the movie just to just to associate it with the title, just just because that's what heavy metal means to people is and, the music. And, and I think it's interesting that this came out the year MTV was released because it's. Every segment of the animated movie had some musical attachment to it. So you had Sammy Hagar, you had Black Sabbath, even at the end credits, Devo. This was the era when people were linking visuals with music. And when I say linking visuals, not of the artist, but just abstract pictures, designs, thoughts, ideas. And I think the music fit with the movie. So so they, they did that part well. They could integrate it in. And this article is so interesting because it compares this heavy metal movie to what most viewers think animation was before this. And if you were to ask the average person what's the best animated movie or what animated movies are there, everyone would just say Disney. And it's so true. The first thing that you think of, of before this era were Disney movies. They they blocked the market on motion picture animation. They were known for making cartoons, and, and of course, cartoons for children. So, so so this was really revolutionary at the time, having an adult R-rated animated movie, and it wasn't just about a princess. Also, the challenges were to get multiple animators. Animated movies before this had one story, a common theme, whereas this was different styles, different ways of of looking at even different mediums where there were some cross segments where they were taking live action people and then semi-animating them you could tell like like the guy that was an astronaut driving a car in outer space this was new technology for the time the visuals worked because it was still it was campy for cartoon but it, it was also realistic in a way so you could you could see that that's what i'm saying i think it would be better if it was such a financial success that they would do it year after year because this was a snapshot of what was considered advanced animation for 1981. I would love to see a progression over the years, different styles of animation within one movie and how it had developed from the 80s all the way to today. Hello. I'm Patrick Stewart, and you're listening to Star Pod Lot Pod Lucky Pod Thing. I'm Picard. 
Now pay attention to this. Far out beyond our world and time lies the ultimate epic encounter with the supreme alien intelligence. Hello, my name's Anthony Rooney, but you can call me Roo. They say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, how else can you explain me popping up in this podcast? That old proverb might also explain Super Space Theater, a series of compilation movies cobbled together from episodes of various ITC shows. Yes, that's them. And if you've now got the theme from The Muppet Show playing in your head, I do apologise. Back in 1977, when Star Wars came along, some canny soul at ITC decided that they could cash in on its popularity by combining a couple of episodes from a property they owned to make their own sci-fi blockbuster. That property was Jerry Anderson's Space 1999, and the episodes chosen comprised a two-part story called The Bringers of Wonder that were combined to make a movie called Destination Moonbase Alpha. Now, I should say that even in 1977, compilation movies were not a new idea. When The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was still on air, two-part stories were actually produced with an eye to a theatrical release. They'd even film extra material just for the movie-length versions. And back in the 60s, that was great, because as well as getting to see Napoleon Solo and Ilya Koryakin on the big screen, we were also getting to see them in colour in the days when most people's television sets were black and white. The reason why those Man From U.N.C.L.E. compilations still stand up is that thought had gone into turning them into movies at the time the episodes were being made. There have been other compilation movies, though, that really butchered the source material. For example... I own a copy of a Green Hornet movie that seems to be made up of entirely random scenes from the 1960s TV show. Well, I say random, but it's mostly fight scenes, and it's obvious that the movie is cashing in on Bruce Lee's subsequent popularity. No thought whatsoever has been given to creating a coherent storyline, which makes the movie strangely comical to watch, in a sort of so-bad-it's-funny kind of way. So you've got the good and the bad of compilation movies, and what ITC did fell somewhere in between. Destination Moonbase Alpha was fairly good because it had started out as a two-part story. However, an introduction was needed to explain why the moon was wandering aimlessly through deep space rather than orbiting the Earth. This was comprised of clips from the pilot episode Breakaway, accompanied by an opening narration and a Star Wars-style text scroll running up the screen. And even at the time, it looked tacky, and it wasn't helped by a somewhat naff theme tune either. I have nothing to say on that subject. Still, Destination Moonbase Alpha did well enough that more episodes of Space 1999 were plundered to make another movie with the uninspiring title Alien Attack. Unfortunately, Bringers of Wonder was the show's only two-part story, so knitting together a couple of first-season episodes wouldn't be quite so seamless. Maybe that's why some bright spark came up with the idea of filming some bridging material featuring square-jawed actor Patrick Allen and some random guys in polo-neck sweaters standing around a CB radio 
discussing what had happened to the moon. It was not only unnecessary, it was eye-wateringly bad. At this point, ITC's American branch stepped in and took over. They too wanted to create some sci-fi themed compilation movies from their back catalogue, but this time for cable TV and satellite stations rather than the cinema. Enter Jerry Anderson's superfan David Hirsch, who was brought in as a consultant to advise on which episodes of what Anderson shows might fit nicely together to make more movies. Human decision required. Readers of Starlog from back in the day might recognise the name David Hirsch as being a regular contributor to our favourite sci-fi magazine. In fact, it's Mr Hirsch we have to thank for Jerry Anderson's column in Starlog. Now, it's worth pointing out that whatever the shortcomings of what would come to be known as the Super Space Theater movies, they were not David Hirsch's fault. And I suspect the films would have been pretty terrible without his involvement. Rather than another Space 1999 movie, it was Jerry Anderson's UFO series that was next up for the compilation treatment. Unidentified flying objects. Oh, good subject. You got a script? And it's quite ambitious perhaps overly ambitious, in trying to create a coherent storyline from no less than six episodes. And amazingly, it sort of works. I don't buy it, Straker. Look, I'm not trying to sell you anything, boy. Still, on first viewing, Invasion UFO was somewhat of a shock to the system. I remember watching it on newfangled VHS video cassette back in the 1980s and the opening titles and theme tune took me entirely by surprise. I'd expected the opening titles from the original TV series with Barry Gray's wonderful, punchy theme. But no, instead we had some pretty naff graphics, accompanied by a track called Dawn of an Era by Francis Monkman. Now at this point, I'd like to play you a clip of that music, but I'm told I can't due to copyright reasons. We've taken legal advice and we've been told that we could be sued and the whole podcast could be pulled if I play even a second's worth of that track. Also, by American law, which I must confess I don't really understand, everyone involved in the podcast would be tied up in a sack with lead weights and thrown into the sea to drown. Like like those unwanted kittens. Anyway, the only way to get round the copyright is, um, for me to perform Dawn of an Era for you. Unfortunately, I'm not a musician and I can't play any musical instruments. Well, I did have a go at playing the banjo when I was young, but friends and family took to throwing bricks at me, so I stopped. Regardless, and entirely for your benefit, I'm prepared to give it a go. So, a one, a two, a one, two, three. For the sake of both your ears and your sanity, this section has been redacted. Stand by for action. It wasn't just Jerry Anderson's live action series that were movified. Some of his puppet shows, Stingray, Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet and Joe 90, got the compilation treatment too. 
At the time, Anderson purists were a little critical of these films, especially the addition of new special effects to the original footage, and I can understand why. If you'd grown up with these shows in the 1960s, then the addition of laser beams to Stingray and computer-generated Mysteron pyramids might have seemed sacrilegious. On the other hand, you might have just been grateful to have any kind of access to these much-loved TV shows from your youth, even if they had been tinkered with a bit. I think I fell into the latter group. That said, even I was a little taken aback by changes to Captain Scarlet's old enemies, the Mysterons. They sounded a little... different somehow. This is the voice of the Mysterons. Hey! We know you can hear us, Earthmen. Howdy! We just blew up Cloudbase, but guess what? It was all a dream. We ain't so bad. You're all invited back next week to this locality to have a hidden helping of our hospitality. Mr. On, that is. Sit a spell. Take your shoes off. You'll come back now. Here? as we close out this issue of Starpod Log, we consider one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. Oftentimes we compare the prices of things. We're not only looking at products, but we look at how expensive it was to be a geek decades ago. This ad is for Monster Miniatures. The night is black and stormy. You sit up in your bed as lightning cracks the sky. Eerie sounds invade your room. Heavy footsteps in the hallway. The flapping of bat wings at your window. A horrifying, half-human howl. You feel an icy grip close in around your neck as you lunge out of bed and flip on the light. And there they are, the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Mummy. So this is a set of four pewter figures. You could buy them individually or all four together they're only two and a half inches tall that's smaller than the star wars figure they're each now remember this this is 1981 money 24.95 wow well i guess pewter was expensive it still that was a is, big right? deal during that time though pewter collectibles okay well yeah they made them like Civil War figures and things like that. So yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. That yeah. was that was common collectible. That I mean, do people still? I mean, do companies still make pewter collectible figures? Is that a thing anymore? I never see it advertised. I don't know. Do they make starships? Pewter starships? No, they're it? not. They're not pewter. Okay. So I'm saying it's like so, this is this is one of those odd things. Yeah, but the, but but it's also heavy too. It's like metal. I mean, yeah, 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 it's real heavy. Twenty four ninety five each, or a special offer. Only seventy nine ninety five, postage included. <laughs> okay, for all four. For all four, well, which is a good deal considering the individual price. Yeah, but but yeah, but that's expensive. So really, that's like two hundred dollars today's money for these things. I, I don't it's, guess they really sold a lot. I I I never see these anywhere. If I ever seen go to toy shows or anything, so who knows. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.